This is an ABC podcast. Hey, this is Earshot. Miyuki Okiranta here. The internet has allowed anyone to speak about anything. A 13 year old girl in Australia can write a letter to Jacinta Ardern that the world then gets to read and be moved by. But what's the cost of this democratisation of voices? That's what journalist and comedian Sammy Shah is looking at in the final episode of his series, Shut Up, a free speech investigation. In the end, I think the Athenians had it right all along. Remember them? They developed two concepts that come together to create freedom of speech. They were Isagoria and Parahesia. Isagoria is equal speech, the ability for everyone in the citizenry to be able to access free speech. Parahesia is frank speech, the ability to say what you want. The limits placed on those two, and there have always been limits, change from society to society. But as long as those two values are broadly observed, freedom of speech is honoured. So, do we then have free speech in Australia? Do we have isagoria and parahesia? I put that question to Professor Adrian Stone of the Melbourne Law School, who spent her career studying this subject. Okay, so Australia is uh, uh, quite unusual um, in not having constitutional protection for freedom of expression or freedom of speech. However, I think the difference is less significant than it first looks. And the reason is as follows. I think we have a long tradition of freedom of speech as both a political and a legal value in this country. It is um, taken into account by the courts all the time when they develop case law, when they um, interpret statutes. Freedom of speech is, you know, amongst what we sometimes talk about, like the fundamental values of, of the legal system. It's one of the easiest arguments to make. So I think it has a certain legal status, irrespective of the Constitution. I also think it has a quite strong, very strong acceptance in political debate. And one thing that strikes me about our political debates is usually everyone agrees that they're committed to freedom of speech. What they actually disagree about is, you know, what it means in particular circumstances. So maybe given that the law is clear on free speech, we shouldn't be looking to politicians for guidance, as their understanding is more open to personal interpretations. And that makes sense. Politicians aren't legal theorists, philosophers, or even academics who've spent their lives working in the exploration and advancement of free speech as a value. It would be as ridiculous as getting your knowledge from politicians on a subject that has nothing to do with them like, um... Like, um, I don't know, climate change science, human rights as they pertain to the treatment of refugees, or anything that doesn't involve changing leaders every few weeks because an opinion poll said to do so. Sorry, just exercising some of my parahesia there. To predict the future of free speech in Australia means having to study how it's being debated and how it's being used in the places that the future often begins, university campuses. In fact... When you talk about the challenges to free speech, or where censorship might be taking control, it's university campuses that are often brought up. The government is so worried about campus speech that a former Chief Justice of the High Court has been asked to review the health of freedom of speech on Australia's university campuses. First though, what happens when free speech is challenged on campus? 
You can still hear the tail end of the protest down here. Just minutes ago, it was in full throttle. Protesters and people supporting the film were chin to chin, some of them yelling slogans at each other. I saw a couple of guys wearing T-shirts that said feminism is cancer. Campus protests against alt-right speakers, trying to shut down the airing of a documentary on men's rights and a generally unwelcoming environment for anyone trying to raise a point of view that isn't progressive. No wonder Dr. Kevin Donnelly, Senior Research Fellow at Australian Catholic University, feels some of his students are being persecuted. I did give a talk at a conference in Sydney two years ago, put together by a group of uh, conservative students Mm -hmm. from New South Wales, University of Wollongong in Newcastle and Sydney. And they had about 50, 80 students there who were all undergraduates. And they, for two days, spoke about the fact that political correctness was alive and well and that they were often hesitant about putting a conservative viewpoint because the tutor or the lecturer or the vibe Mm -hmm. was very much centre-left. Right. Now, all I could do then is listen to these students and say, well, there must be an element of truth in it. It isn't just Dr Donnelly who's had that experience. Professor Louise Richardson Self is a lecturer in philosophy and gender studies at the University of Tasmania. There are definitely things that students don't want to say because they are intimidated by the idea that they can be called out. Mm. And I think call-out culture is really problematic. That's something that the left have not (laughs) dealt with well at all because when you shout someone down, that doesn't give them the confidence that they could actually learn something. And what happens is people either cling more firmly onto what they already believe or they just never mention it again and they back off and then their opinions don't evolve in any kind of way, whether it's more strongly or for the other side. And that's just it. If students who are on the progressive side don't allow their more conservative counterparts to practice their parahesia, their frank speech, then they will instead be damaging everyone's isogoria, everyone's equal speech. And that approach leaves the totality of free speech damaged. But on the flip side... Conservative students and commentators also have to realise that protests on campus aren't automatically censorship. Professor Adrian Stone again. Protest needs to be recognised as not just permissible, but actually a really legitimate and important way in which people express their views. Now, naturally, that means uh, protest can't be put in a way that actually makes it impossible to... um, Uh, hold the event. It needs to be done in a way that allows the event to go ahead. Uh, But we ought to recognise that this is, in fact, a really important exercise of freedom of speech. So I don't think it's free speech versus protest. I think controversial speakers and protesters are both exercising really important rights. What they're doing then is what's commonly known as fighting it out in the marketplace of ideas. A flat space where all our ideas are held up to equal scrutiny and subjected to the same debates and analysis and the best idea wins. Writer Benjamin Law isn't such a big believer in that concept. So free speech, that everyone should be able to say what they want and everyone's in the same marketplace of ideas, is such a wonderful idealistic concept to which we should all aspire. But the realities mean that Not everyone has the same access to that speech in the first place. And those who do sometimes will be punished for exercising that right disproportionately from Mm -hmm. their peers. 
Richard Alsop, a senior fellow at the Institute of Public Affairs, does have a greater level of faith in the marketplace. But he also sees threats to our free speech. I tend to err on the optimistic side of um, these things, but I think there are a, a number of um, threats at, at the moment. I mean, I think this thing of people being in silos such that they have such different um, worldviews. So in universities and so forth, where you're unlikely to run into anybody who supports Trump or, mm-hmm. you know, if you went out to, you know, some town in sort of middle America between the coasts where, you know, almost everybody will support Trump. So both sides are only, you know, talking to people who share their their view and not having that view challenged or really trying to understand why other people hold a, a different view and which is obviously an is different to where we started with the Athenian example where you have a you know a one place where everybody went to argue the issues of the day so everybody heard everybody else's argument you know it's a small enough society but also an open enough one where people's you know views are being being challenged I'd argue that the Athenian model still exists today, in a fashion. It isn't the town square or the local senate. Our society is bigger now. We all have smartphones and the internet, and my opinions in Melbourne can be challenged by someone in Addis Ababa, who can have their point of view dissected by someone else in Oslo. The internet was supposed to be that marketplace fully realised. But Benjamin Law's concerns have played out repeatedly there. While minority groups who previously didn't have access to the marketplace can now hawk their own intellectual wares, the competition can be brutal and oftentimes takes a toll that most shouldn't have to pay. Ginger Gorman is a writer and journalist who spent years studying those online forces that destroy lives. We know them as trolls, and they can do anything from writing hurtful tweets to revealing all your personal information to thousands of strangers who then threaten your safety to extreme levels. Ginger has had all of that done to her in the past, and it's what led her to write her book Troll Hunting. She doesn't think the democratization of speech, the concept of isogoria or equal speech, works in real life. The internet was always sold to us as a place which was going to be, you know, giving us the great democratization of knowledge. Everyone has a voice. It, seriously, writing this book is the first time in my life that I actually asked, do we want everybody to have an equal voice? Is it okay that mm-hmm. someone who is a psychopathic sadist and wants to harm other people has the same voice as someone who is a world expert in their field and they are treated equally? I don't actually think it is. You know, and should you have a consequence if someone goes out to do real life harm against another person, for example, inciting them to suicide. These are really questions that we have never grappled with. We very naively went into this and said, yes, great, knowledge for everyone, a voice for everyone. Well, you know, what we are seeing online is essentially like the Salem witch trials every day of the week where somebody, maybe it's yourself one day, maybe it's myself another day, gets hunted online. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times the consequences of this are very serious. Like cyber hate targets were describing to me 
the total destruction of their lives. So losing their jobs, having their reputations wrecked online, not being able to get another job. One woman described to me having all of her details posted onto sexual websites. She was a single mum. Strange men were turning out night and day wanting sexual uh, mm-hmm. acts from her. She was terrified and she ended up having to move house a number of times. She also lost her job. She was a high-flying executive. She lost millions of dollars. She's basically unemployable now. So Do we want the kind of people who are attacking her to have absolute freedom of speech that they can say and do whatever they want to her? You know, these are really interesting questions. But how do you police the internet? In real life, some of the actions she's describing don't come under the protection of free speech laws because they constitute criminal levels of harassment and abuse. But because it's online, we always just assume it's free speech. How many times do online debates and arguments descend into hate speech, which is then justified by the simple statement, it's my free speech? One of the fathers of the internet is a guy called Vince Cerf. He's quoted in my book, Troll Hunting. And one of the things that he suggested is that we almost have like a number plate system, much the same as you do with cars. So if I see you driving on the road in your car, your car has a number plate. I have no idea who you are, really, but I can see your number plate. Mm -hmm. If you do something that harms me, then the authorities can come and use your number plate to find out who you are. Right. This is what he's essentially proposing online. Now, some people would argue we have IP addresses. They could be used for that, but obviously that doesn't work at the moment. I think it's a really facile and uh, thoughtless argument in a way to behave as if getting rid of anonymity completely would solve everything. Mm -hmm. Anonymity in some instances online is incredibly important. So, for example, a woman that I have done a feature article on she used to uh, do incredible self-harm she now runs a support group for people who are trying to recover from self-harm and those people can be anonymous if Mm -hmm. they want that's incredibly important that people who are in marginalized groups like that have access to anonymity if they need it but we also need to solve this problem of predator trolling where you have individuals going out to do real life harm to other people and they're doing it under the guise of anonymity. There's mm-hmm. got to be a balance in there somewhere. But it's not unsolvable. I just feel like the the norms that apply in offline society have to apply online. You know, there's this crazy idea that we should have absolute free speech online. Why? Mm-hmm. You don't have it in other parts of your life. Why do you need it on the internet? The psychopaths Ginger Gorman is talking about have been people she encountered during the course of her research. And they are indeed extreme humans who thrill in the destruction of lives. Her research into trolls and the dark corners of the internet they lurk in is even more prescient in the aftermath of Christchurch, where a terrorist used the internet to live stream his horrific crimes while creating a manifesto that's part racist creed and part meme montage. How then can anyone protect against this? Like, I want other people to be able to speak. I want to hear their views and I want them to be able to change my mind. And the trolls changed my mind about lots of things, you know? Yeah. And they changed as well. Some of those guys stopped trolling because I interviewed them. Some of them became a lot kinder. One of the guys that I spent a year with, he was an incel when I met him. So he was an involuntary celibate. He was part of that cohort that really hate women. Like they think that women are there for sex. They think that you can use violence to get sex from them. 
And by the time I'd been done talking with him for a year, he said to me, thank you so much because I no longer hate women. Now that is not call out culture or an eye for an eye or hatred that caused that change. What caused that change was me going in there with empathy and talking to him for a year and being a decent, kind human being. I think we need to bring our greatest humanity to this problem, not hatred and call out culture. It's similar to the approach Dr. Rose Warren has taken in her classes, focusing on how better to prepare the modern university student to handle difficult speech, to handle another's parahesia. Well, the way I handle it, the way I get through this time in our politics <laughs> is simply thinking of myself as teaching kids how to think. And this critical thinking thing is something I'm really passionate about, being media literate, about being able to look at, at a debate that's ha being had in the media and tease it apart. Because that, that's my interest. I'm not interested in giving you an, an answer that's finite because I'd like to think my views can adapt and change and, and, and evolve. And that's how I look at my students. What tools do they need to be able to enter life in a way that's not dogmatic, mm -hmm. but rather actually can look at how we're even as individuals and, and even progressives being manipulated by the media to fall into really boxed positions as opposed to thinking, could it actually be more complicated than this? What are the tools that I need to actually look at this more critically and what part I'm playing in this story? So is academic speech safe? Are universities going to be safe for free speech? It's pretty good, but we have to be really vigilant about it because there are a lot of pressures on universities coming in a lot of directions. You know, one set of pressures is the same set of pressures that applies into relation to freedom of speech on campus, that there are people with kind of, you know, very, very um, intensely held views about a certain subjects that can make researching them difficult. My own view is that the more serious um, challenge to academic freedom comes on the one hand from the commercialisation of research and the reliance upon uh, private funding, which might lead private bodies, outside bodies, to think that they can influence the way research is conducted. Um, and, and that might include sometimes foreign countries. Um, and the other... So foreign government gives money to your university to set up a new wing, but says you can't do any research into human rights abuses that we have right. you know, perpetrated. Yeah. It's happened too. Recently, it affected author and professor of public ethics at Charles Sturt University in Canberra, Clive Hamilton's work, to the point that he lost a publisher for a book critical of China. Well, I wrote a book uh, on uh, called Silent Invasion, the uh, China's influence in Australia, which was a very detailed uh, analysis and assessment of the nature and scope of Chinese Communist Party influence activities in this country, and uh, I'd had a contract with my usual publisher, Alan and Unwin. I wrote the book. It was all finished, uh, edited, legaled, and so on, and that was ready to send to uh, be made up as page proofs. And I received a call from Alan and Unwin saying that they were not going to publish my book because they were afraid of retaliation from Beijing. There was a there's a very grave danger there for a while that uh, a book critical of the Chinese Communist Party could not find a publisher in Australia. And although my book came out, I'm worried about the message that was sent. Imagine you're a, a early career, mid-career academic uh, writing about the politics of uh, modern China 
and you noticed that uh, Clive Hamilton uh, had a lot of trouble publishing his book and then when he did publish it, he was subject to all kinds of attacks from all kinds of people, uh, many uh, Australians with a material interest in uh, the People's Republic of China. They're on the payroll, more or less. The much-touted marketplace of ideas, then, doesn't hold up to the marketplace of commerce. And that's the thing about free speech in Australia. We're looking in the wrong places for the fault lines, for the censorship. The media narrative is that free speech is under threat from political correctness, identity politics, racial and gender bias, and all the other sexy topics that get clicks and make us all want to write lengthy rants on Facebook and Twitter. Writer Jeff Sparrow goes beyond that academic freedom into areas where censorship is inflicted by the state. In the Australian context, the threats to freedom of speech overwhelmingly come from the right and the state. It's the state cracking down on on your ability to say things. And so in that context, when we're talking about threats to freedom of speech, we are talking about things like the ASIO legislation. We are talking about things like, I don't know, the restrictions on people uh, working in detention centres from speaking about the conditions that they face. We're talking about the restrictions on building workers. And in that situation, it's overwhelmingly the left that is arguing for the expansion of freedom of speech. That's mostly not what people are talking about when they start to say freedom of speech is under attack in Australia. So why aren't these issues the ones we're talking about? I think the... um collapse of the mainstream media or the enormous challenge of the mainstream media, the, the rise of social media with its uh, anger mm-hmm. uh, has changed the debate significantly. Gay Alcorn, Melbourne editor of The Guardian, knows where the blame for that superficial conversation lies. Partly because, to go back to what we were talking about before, that um, the media which now is online and need clicks, the voices of the extreme get the clicks. So the so the debate becomes far more anger on 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 one side or the other. So it's it's you know the Pauline Hanson thing or the you know it's okay to be white all this sort of stuff or the or the um, Fraser Anning stuff. They're kind of fringe extremists, but they they get um, discussion like mm-hmm. opinion pieces. Then they'll want to go on they'll go on the morning shows and there'll be a screaming match or a debate about that. Twitter goes crazy, you know, rightly so. Um, so yes, those those a lot of those, and even they don't have to be prominent people at all, but the, the sort of the anger and the viciousness and the attacks and the trolling um, didn't used to be part of our debate when all okay. you could do was write a letter to the editor, you know, and have an extreme point of view. They were there, but they but they become much more amplified, and the media, I think, plays up on it too much because they they have been chasing for too long. Clicks. I don't think the Guardian does this so much at all, but certainly I think most of the media do do it. And sort of, someone says something outrageous, and that's an out, that's a news story. Right. And then the reaction to that is another news story, and it goes on and on. So in that way, I think our debate is more polarized. Maybe the way forward is for us to take responsibility for our speech. Then it's not just about what we say, but why we say it, and that why is often something we don't spend enough time prosecuting. Andrew Bolt wouldn't have a problem being considered polarising and his contributions to the national debate on any issue can be contentious, often just because it was he who stated them. We yeah, all fail. The and the Sammy, and we all fail. Uh, I try my best. I'm not perfect. I try my best. And there may have been times, indeed, when I've gone too far. I, that's quite, you know, and sometimes 
you're fighting for your reputation, you might fight harder than you should. And those articles that you say where people say, oh, Andrew Bolt, I never thought I'd agree with him, those are ones where I clearly have stepped outside what they thought of the tribal lines and said what I think. There's something worth considering in that, that maybe the things some of us say are being said only out of spite or out of subscription to an ideology instead of a true representation of thought and consideration. Or, here's a simpler way of putting it, don't trust someone who is paid to fill a word limit on a regular basis. After a while, no matter who it is, controversy and outrage are the only tricks left in their bag. Thinking about the repercussions of those choices might not be something they dwell on, though. Christchurch changed the intensity of the entire debate. There's an observation I made in the aftermath when considering all the interviews I conducted for this series. Whenever I asked a white person what they thought the fault lines of free speech were, their answers tended to be political correctness, maybe identity politics. Sometimes it was legal restrictions on protest. Whenever I asked people of colour, any colour, they said Nazis, hate speech, threats to their safety being ignored, again and again. There was a palpable frustration that their words were not being taken seriously because the threats they perceived were different from the threats perceived by the white majority. Or, to put it more flippantly, one side is worried about genocide, the other side, rental prices. Fraser Anning is easy to ignore when the Nazis he's seen with aren't calling for a final solution to your existence. An election campaign that focuses on one community is easy to disregard as just playing politics when it's not your community in the crosshairs. Lawyer and community activist Nadal Nuon has been worried about this for a long time. I met up with her at her home a couple of days after she'd just given birth. I'm really worried. Like, on one hand, I'm really worried that without care, we will end up with another lip in our hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll end up with another Sudanese or black kid or African kid. dead because of this kind of politics I think so. that's how serious I think it is um, and I don't take I, I, like I don't take chances Australia Day I'll be calling all my brothers and telling them don't go to the beach you know like I did on the day of the rally and I was telling you know people from the African community don't get African particularly African boys to go to things like that on my first day back on radio as co-host of the breakfast show on ABC Radio Melbourne after the Christchurch attack My co-host Jacinta Parsons and I got into a conversation about the fallout from the attack and where we think it'll go. That's what actually really hit me on Friday is that I don't have to um, experience the level of fear that the people in that mosque and the mosques around this country and around the world um, have to. And it really hit me. And it's what you and I talk about a lot, that when I hear people discuss their rights in regards to free speech and conversations that we have around hate speech in regard to Mm -hmm. free speech and, and how it masquerades as that at some times, is that those who don't have much to lose that we're constantly hearing from. And uh, what for most of us or people who are not people of colour is is an ideological debate. Um, for people of colour, for Muslims in this country, it's dangerous and the stakes are enormously high. Um, can we now say that speech doesn't exist in its own vacuum, you know, after those events on Friday and that the virtual world is not virtual but has impacts in our real world? What's worth noticing and what's been noted a lot is that the terrorist was Australian. 
And we have to take responsibility for that. A lot of politicians and a lot of media who have previously used bigotry and prejudice as scaffolding on which to raise their careers suddenly wanted to hug a Muslim over the weekend, get their picture taken at a mosque, tweet out some platitudes. To them, all I can say is that it took 50 dead people to get you here. And that's an indictment of your own character. And that's an indictment of what you've allowed our country to become in that we have allowed our politicians to play to the very lowest possible base. And those paying attention won't forget that. We won't forget that the first time Muslims were portrayed with any empathy on the front pages of many local papers is when 50 of them were gunned down. And, and I don't, and I hear that, and I don't want to be naive or disrespectful to that position at all, but this um, has shown um, that the feelings I had when I visited the mosque yesterday, when there was the open day for the mosque, was of actually abounding love. And it felt huge and significant that the doors of the mosque were open all around our city. And many of us went in there to learn and to share in that grief. Uh, do you think that we're enough of a people right now to wake up and to no longer s- sort of tolerate what we have seen in terms of this slide into normalising racism? So, Do you think you're asking if things change? Will, will they change? I don't think so. I think days or months from now we'll stop caring about their lives or their deaths. We won't ask Pauline Hanson why she says the things she says. We won't ask Prime Ministers, current or former, why they've said the things they've said. We won't stop listening to journalists that espouse bigotry that this was built on, giving them their, giving their TV shows and radio shows the ratings and successes that they need to feel validated. And we won't think much of it when another man at, attacks a woman wearing a hijab or rams a car into a mosque. Because now the standards of our horror are set even higher. 50 people died. They were Muslims. They were a teacher, a futsal player, a software engineer, a PhD, fathers, mothers, children, a 14-year-old, a 3-year-old, They were born in New Zealand. They were immigrants. They were refugees. All we can say to them is we let this happen to you and we're sorry. I wanted to be wrong, but I knew I wouldn't be. Sure enough, within 24 hours of the attack, Fraser Anning was gaining a wider platform on media just by being abhorrent. Pauline Hansen was back to her usual haunts. Almost all the people who had made anti-Muslim statements in the past failed to show any introspection. And the meagre few who did had their moments of reflection smashed by Twitter callouts. So all sides receded to the ideological extremes, with no lessons being learnt. And I'd been forewarned about this. When I spoke to Andrew Bolt, I had asked him if the criticisms ever get to him. Well, see, that's a tough one, because when you say, does it bother you? And if I was to say, yes, it does, then... Yeah, there's so many people that hate hate me or, or want to hate mm-hmm. me, like like hating the idea of me, like hating what they think is me, invested in it, that I'm giving them comfort. Okay. And you don't want to do that. But, I mean, I'm, I always believe in being open. Yes, it does bother me. It also bothers me um, when I'm not bothered, you know, because you've obviously developed several thick layers. I mean, I've been beaten so much that, you know, you you develop calluses, and you wonder sometimes calluses on your soul. You know, it gets in the way of you admitting to yourself errors, perhaps. Because if you were to believe half the criticisms, you'd be you'd go and kill yourself. Um, so you've got to you, you're always treading that fine line between being open to criticism. Have I gone too far? Have I been too cruel? Um, have I been too mean? Am I wrong? You know, uh, between that and I won't let them get to me. I am going to keep saying what I'm saying. How do you 
that between being resilient and being stubborn, it's sometimes a bit hard. It feels like everyone's chosen to be too stubborn because the alternative requires more introspection than we want, which is a shame because there's lives at stake while we're arguing over whether or not political correctness has gone wrong. It used to be that we spent too much time enjoying parahesia, enjoying frank speech, but never realising how little isogoria, how little equal speech there was. And now, because we're getting closer to isogoria, some people feel like they're losing the parahesia to get us there. The trick is, when we're done, somehow ending up with both. Frank speech that is equally distributed. Knock, knock. Something that cannot be deemed offensive to anyone, that is inclusive and understanding of all perspectives, opinions, cultural considerations, and socioeconomic backgrounds, and is also hilariously funny. Something that cannot be deemed offensive to anyone, that is inclusive.